I want to welcome all of you to our summer series, our Thursday night Bible studies. And we're going to continue this in the fall. What we're doing, what I'm trying to do is get some really um, strong objections to the Christian faith, especially from inside the church, like the so-called progressive Christians or people that are deconstructed or just people that are wondering, um, outside the church as well, but, but especially... Some of the attacks that are coming, they're really sophisticated in certain ways. Not just your typical, oh, I don't believe in God thing, and how can you believe in miracles, silly things like that. It, they're more sophisticated arguments. And one area that that's coming in is the doctrine of hell. Because that's a big deal, you know. Like people say, especially the day that we're living in right now, oh, how can a good God send anybody to hell? Is that, you know, and even if he does send them to hell, how could he send them there for all eternity if we're finite? We've only, we can only sin a certain amount of times. How, how, how is it fair that God could make you suffer for eternity for a finite amount of sins? We're going to get to that argument later, um, later on. But we're laying a lot of groundwork because it's really important that we do that. And that's, that's what we started last week. Um, as we move forward, I think in the fall, another area that's under attack is, is the scripture itself, especially in the New Testament, the, uh, how could you trust what you're reading today is what they wrote down, what the apostles wrote down, and what they had in the early church? You know, it hasn't just been copied and copied and copied and error after error and after error. So, you know, how, how do we know? Do we, we don't have original manuscripts. We don't have the originals. So how do we even know what they actually wrote? So that's a big, big deal. It's a, it's, a, it's a strong attack coming against Christianity. And then also, how do we know which Bibles should even be in? The scripture. I mean, which book should even be in here? The, the canon itself. Who decides that? Why don't we have other gospels like the, the Gospel of Thomas or, you know, the Gospel of the Apostles? Why are, why isn't that part of the scripture? These are real challenges, man, for us as Christians. We need to know just a little bit <laughs> to be able to at least be familiar with the arguments and then hold our own because we do have to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So this is a tough one we're taking on for sure, Doctrine of Hell, uh, but it's it's definitely something that we need to. Know for ourselves, because we tend to avoid this. I know I have, you know, like, I know the doctrine in my seminary classes and through the years, obviously you deal with it, but it's something, you know, if you don't have to, I want to. But um, last week, we, we just talked about very briefly um, why, who can judge the world? Who is qualified to actually judge and to give this kind of sentence to people, this, this, you know, send anybody to hell in that way. And basically the answer is God, uh, because first of all, we talked about the reality of evil, that evil truly exists. Um, I don't know, do we have it? Could people listen to it if they weren't here? They could hear it. But then it really talks about, um, it's, it turns out that only God himself is qualified and capable of judging because he is present everywhere. There's nowhere to go. He's right there. He is present everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent. His knowledge and judgment, he's all-knowing. You can't get over on him. He knows everything. He knows the intent of our thoughts, the intent of our hearts. So you can't fool him. And we can maybe fool judges and other people, but you can't fool God. That that's, He stands above us, and we will answer to him. Uh, his power, he is sovereign over all creation. And we will have to give an account to him. Um, his, uh, his unchanging, his immutability, he doesn't change. He's not going to say, well, this is right today, but it's wrong tomorrow. 
that's immutable in, in his judgment. So we just looked at his majesty, his glory, the person of God, and he is the one who created us. He's the one who set everything, all the rules, everything that we're to obey. He's the one that's given us the covenants, the decrees, all of that. So we will answer to him. That's what qualifies him to be the judge. So we laid that foundation last week. Now today, we're going to kind of build on that a little bit. We're building up to get into the doctrine of hell. I told some people we're going to talk about it very much tonight. I'm sorry, that's next week. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, but we're still building this foundation because we want to make sure. This is what gives God the right to judge us. This is because of who he is. And so we need to be able to respond to that. You could say because he's God and you'd be right. You know, because he made us and you'd be right. But it's nice to put a little flesh on those bones. That's what we're trying to do here for you tonight with this study. Tonight we're going to look at um, the second chapter, and it's how can a loving God send anyone to hell? That's a big question today, not just outside of the church, but even within the church. Um, the, the progressive church, which is really, really gaining a following, and you'll hear a lot of people say we're deconstructing our faith and you know, re-examining what we used to believe and all these doctrines in the Bible, and they're really questioning that, which is okay, but they're not questioning with sincerity. It's not like questioning because we really want to know. We're questioning because we hate that teaching, and we don't want to have anything to do with it. There's a big difference in that. So, anyway, um, let me pray, and we'll get started with tonight's lesson. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much. Lord, I thank you for these people coming out tonight, and I just pray that it's a profitable time, that it's useful, that it's helpful for us. Especially in a day and age where as Christians we need to be sharp, we need to be equipped. We're being attacked on every single front, Lord, in every conceivable way um, to, to the, to the uh, authority and authenticity of your very word and the very teachings therein, Lord. And it's not just from outside the church, but also inside the church, as, as you well know, Lord. So I pray that you would equip us, that you would help us, that we would be strong in our faith, that we would have a decent understanding of these things and be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So equip us, help us, and I just pray that um, it, it goes well tonight. The information is brought forth in a way where we can really comprehend it, bring it into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when evil people, when somebody real evil is given a long sentence for certain crimes, that's viewed as just, like injustice. Like, this is what justice is. So... Did you ever hear anybody get sentenced, a double life sentence? Or you're sentenced for 152 years. You know, a triple life sentence. Like um, that Dr. Nasser, do you remember him from the Olympics? And he molested or he was He was Michigan State, but he was a doctor for, for the Olympians and, and all the girls, especially over years and years and years. And he, he used that position of authority to, to molest and abuse so many of, of these girls, and he was finally caught. He's found out, and he was given a double life sentence. Well, I guess 152 years in prison. He's like, and people were cheering. Yes, that's you know, is that 152 years? That seems like kind of a long time. But um, he showed no remorse. He said, "I did a good job. I helped those girls, and they showed no appreciation for me." So he he didn't. Nothing. And so, so you're just like that's you deserve that. You know, you deserve that double life sentence. And what's one of the reasons? Do you guys know why they they give a double life sentence or you know an enormous amount of years that nobody could live? You know, exactly. That's that's the one thing. If something were to happen in in one sentence and it's and it's 
there's a technicality on one of the life sentences. Yeah, that other life sentence. Early parole. So when, they, so when somebody gets life, usually it's not, well, it, it is you know, 25 years to life, but then they're up for parole. If you give them 152 years, they're not going to be eligible for parole until they're 105, and they'll be dead. Hopefully, that's the idea. <laughs> so, well, that's it. And, and so we feel that, but when it comes to God and um, thinking about God's holiness and how unholy we are, people still ask the question, like, you know, how could a good God send somebody or anybody to hell for that matter? And that's kind of what we want to talk about tonight and uh, or continue to talk about. And that's, that's the main question. And when, when I ask that question, like, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? If somebody comes up to you and asks you that, if you're a Christian, you know, how can any, first of all, what do you think a couple of assumptions might be that they have in their hearts as they're, as they're asking you, you know, how could God do that? How can he send somebody to hell? If he's a loving God, how can he send anybody to hell for any period of time or for, you know, especially for all eternity? What are some assumptions that they might be working from when they say this, when they ask this question? It's a non-believer or progressive Christian. What do you think? And we started talking about that last week. We'll talk a lot more about that this week. That's really good. That's right. Anything else that you might think of? Don? Most people think they're good. <laughs> they assume that they're that, that's one of my points for sure. That's my second point. My, my first point, well, Tony taught the third one. Um, the first one was people tend to work from their own definition of love, right? That's what you want to do. Like, well, I think this is, love to me is this. And if God's loving, it doesn't make sense. But again, and that's because they don't understand the nature of God, really, the, the, how holy and just he is. We're going to try to press in on that tonight, especially. Uh, but, but that's it. Like, like they, they have their, their thinking, that God sends anybody to hell, that he can't be all loving. Because, like, even as a parent, we love our children. We might discipline our kids, but there's a point where we stop, you know, we still love them in that way. So, you know, people have their own definitions um, that, that, you know, he should love people equally everywhere. Everlasting punishment for any person is not a loving God. And people will say, say that's not my God. My God wouldn't do that. That's not. So they have their own definitions of, of who God is to be. Um, and then what Don said, we tend to see people as generally good. And people tend to see themselves as generally good. You know, I'm not perfect, obviously, but not deserving of eternity in hell. How that God can't do that. So that's kind of what we want to uh, work towards tonight. Nobody's perfect, right? Um, we're human. <laughs> Everything we talk about, we just, you know, it's true. Uh, and, and, you know, but, but come on, sin for, it's going to land somebody in hell for, well, there are some people, perhaps, throughout history, and those vicious people we've talked about, you know, most people were just generally pretty decent people. We're not murderers and killers and that way, so uh, pretty decent. Um, most people are good, so why would God want to punish them for an eternity in hell? So to answer that main question, you know, what we're talking about, why would a loving God send anybody to hell? We want to try to understand a few more characteristics of God. We're going to pick up a little bit from last week. And I don't think we're going to have time tonight. And one reason I really have to keep us on time is because I do have to get out to the airport because my son Will is flying in. 
His playing gets in at 9.30. So we do want to end around 8, 8.10. <laughs> but um, the, the characteristics are kind of hone in on a few more attributes of God that teach us who he is. And hopefully it will make sense for you to say, this is why God, a loving God, can send people to hell. So the first one is, I'm on your outline, we're going to skip um, the independent, complete nature of God. I want to go right to the holiness of God, because that's even more important. I think the first reason is that God is holy. He's holy. That's why a, a good and loving God can and does send people to hell. As a matter of fact, he, part of what the attributes of God mean is that he's the very definition of these things. It's not that just like God is, there's a standard and then he meets that standard of holiness. No, he is very, he is the definition of holiness. That's what we have to wrap our minds around. He is completely and utterly separated from sin or the taint of sin. And it's true all the time. In his being, in his nature, he is holy. I, I can't, I don't know how to express that. Every thought, every action, we can't relate because we, we could know what it means to be holy. And at times we touch that, you know, where there's a reverence for God and awe and just that purity. And we could, we could touch that. But he is that. He doesn't act in any way that is unholy, impure, or in a manner that could rightly be defined as sinful or wrong. He's holy. And in his holiness, you can't come in if you're not. It, it means purity. It means to be set apart. It means to be majestic and, and so pure that no defilement, no taint of, of anything that would taint that can even come into his presence or near him. Since he is perfectly and completely, eternally perfect in purity and morality, morality Holiness can be understood as the complete absence of sin or any sense of wrongdoing. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. There are so many passages. Like With all of these, we could do an entire study. I always like to preface that because we try to be complete. But with subjects, a subject like this, it's really hard to. So we just give a sampling of this idea. And... Isaiah chapter 6, and this is a well-known passage, but I want you to just see the majesty. This is Isaiah's vision of, of the Lord and the overwhelming holiness. I would also, if you talk about holiness, if you ever heard of R.C. Sproul and the Holiness of God series, if you ever have time to check that out, I would really commend that to you. It's amazing. You'll be in awe of God. You'll, you'll get a taste of that holiness. But um, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, In the year that Isaiah, King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and filled up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy Holy, holy. And that's the, the threefold repetition. We have repetition in scripture. That's very, very significant and deep. But this is like holy, perfect, immaculate holiness. Just perfect, perfect, perfect holiness. 
that that threefold signifies that he's perfectly holy and he's utterly unique. There's nothing holy like God. Nothing in the universe. Nowhere. Anywhere. He is stands apart and above in his holiness. No other being can share in his holiness in this way. And he'll always act in a manner consistent with that holiness. And he goes on to say, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, and this is what happens when he sees his holiness. There's just as a woe is me, for I am lost. Right away, when you comprehend God's holiness in the slightest, you're going to be broken. You're going to be, you're just going to bow down. And what did Peter do when he got a glimpse in a sense of Christ's holiness? Remember when the fish came and, and, and they cast and that, I think it's the gospel of Luke's, Luke's account. And he comes back and, and what does Peter say to, to Jesus? He falls out and says, depart from me for I am I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy of you being in your presence, right? And that's kind of the reaction to this sheer, pure, holy truth. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's dangerous if you're not holy. Um, and, and it leaves us undone. It doesn't matter. And there's going to come a day when everybody's going to bow the knee and they're going to fall in God's face because they're going to know and they're going to see him as he is and they're First reaction is what? Down, I'm not worthy, prostrate, falling down. Because they, that holiness of God is manifested, and that power of God in that. And I don't know how, how closely this is connected. Remember the Gospel of John when they came to arrest Jesus and they said, Who are you? Give us your name. He said, What did he say? I'm Jesus. <laughs> I am He. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and what did the guys do? They just automatically fell prostrate down. They stepped back and they were they were slain. They were down because I am He. That's the holiness of God, the power of God. They, you're just going to bow down. You can't you can't enter into that place. And so Isaiah said, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The holiness of God. So that's kind of the idea. It's, um, Isaiah 8, 13 says, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Now, for, for us, when we talk about fear and dread, and that's a misconception for so many Christians, if you're raised in a legalistic way, you're going to be afraid of God. Oh, I'm afraid of... No, the fear of the Lord for us as Christians is you are so holy and so righteous. The depth of that, I'm just in awe of you, in reverence. I'm not like afraid of you, but because of who you are, I, I'm just left shell-shocked, stunned, amazed, at the, and the reverence and awe, and just, I can't even look, you know, I'm just bowing down before you. Even when we meet like dignitaries or some, some people like that, like you're, Oh, it's so nice to meet you. If you meet your idol or something, oh, you know, you're kind of in that presence of those people. Imagine how how it is being in, in, in the Lord. Now, have you ever met somebody, a dignitary or a star or anybody like that? I think back in the day, if I would have got to meet Bruce Springsteen, I probably would have I would have done that. I was like, I idolized him growing up, and you know, maybe uh, there might be this dignitary just like in awe of these people, and you know. But that's that's just a little tiny taste. Imagine being in the presence of God and that sheer holiness of God. Um, 
and there's no defilement, no irreverence, no flippancy, no disobedience, holiness, that those things cannot abide, he cannot tolerate, he cannot allow, no impurities whatsoever, not one single sinful thing. So um, I will ask you, remember even the, well, the holy mountain, um, the animals weren't allowed next, Why were, what, what would happen if the animals got too close, or anybody got too close to the mountain of the Lord, or Moses would go, well, do you remember what would happen to them? They would die. Why? Because it's the holy mountain of God. It's the holiness of God. No unclean thing can come into his presence. So I keep everything away because you can't look at the Lord. You can't see him because of his holiness. Because his holy ground. Take off your sandals. Talk to Moses. We can go on and on with this. But in Leviticus chapter 10, um, if you want to turn with me there in your Bibles, Leviticus 10. And this whole book of Leviticus is about holiness and how we, how one is able to become ready to be in the presence of a holy God. And of course, it ultimately points to Jesus Christ. But all the rituals, all the washings, the holiness code, all these things to make us holy. I love Leviticus, I do. Because it teaches that, but ultimately points to Christ, who is the Holy One. But when you mess around with the Lord, and, you're, and you come in a flippant way, and you disregard His holiness, and you don't come with fear and reverence before Him, uh, especially the priests that had to minister before Him, uh, look what happens. It's Nadab and Abihu, uh, the sons of Aaron, the high of, of the priest. So it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid the incense on it offered uh, and offered unauthorized. So they didn't worship in the way that God commanded them. He's a holy God. He can't take any defilement, like, you know, being out of order in that way. You can't approach him in that way. And he says, this is what you're to bring. This is what you're to bring. Here's how I'm to be worshipped. Here's how you come into my presence. Well, these guys took it upon themselves to do what? Yeah. This is good enough for him, just like we do today. This is good enough for God. I'm just going to sing this song because he's going to like this song because I like this song. And it makes me feel good. So, side note, this is why in worship we try real hard to do what's called the regulative principle of worship. God, God regulates how we worship. We just don't come to perform and say, I think God will like this because I like it and, you know, and I love him. And if we really love him, we say, Lord, how do we approach you? How do we worship you? So even in the songs that we sing, we want to be really careful that they're biblically based, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, that they're theologically correct because we don't want to offer impure worship. That's not going to be pleasing to the Lord, even if it pleases us. Do you know what I'm saying? So everything that we do in worship, it's regulated by, the, by God's word so we can approach him in a way that's pleasing unto him as much as, you know, as, as we can talk before him. But... Um, he accepts that. But here, he said, And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified, and the people all before me, I'm sorry, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So, as you come before the Lord, he's a holy God, and we need to approach him in that way. It can't stand any defilement. It just won't stand with God. So think about like a priceless painting. When you go to see a priceless painting, a Rembrandt, Van Gogh, 
Picasso. And they're going to say, hey, here, dude, take it out. <laughs> no, when you go, like, it's behind something usually, or, or you're, you're blocked off by the ropes. I mean, it's, it's there because if one mark is on that, then it's filed and it's, and it's ruined and it's not, it loses its value and it's, it's, it's stayed. And so there's, and then, and then there's a great cost for that. So if you're the guy that goes up to a Picasso and, you know, scribbles on it, you think you're going to get away with it? Maybe a little girl will, but you are going to pay a price. And that's it's God's holiness. That one mark that loses, it, it defiles that, and there's a cost to that. So it's the Lord of hosts. Um, his holiness, so in his holiness, it demands that he acts against sin and um, towards those who commit sin. So that's that's what God. This is so wonderful about Jesus Christ because He's the only one that could make us presentable before the Lord. So that's always in the background here. But this is the standard of God because He's a holy God and a righteous God and a just God, and so He will um, punish sin. We're to fear Him because He's perfectly holy. He will not even tolerate the hint of imperfection, impurity, or sin. Just think about it, man. If God was less than completely holy. And that wouldn't mean he would tolerate sin. You know what I mean? And, it's, and that's like a defilement. And if he does that, then he's not holy God anymore. Because we want to think, oh, holy God. Oh, but, but if he's, if he, in a, again, he makes provision through Christ Jesus. Amen and praise God. Or else we'd all be in trouble. Rightly so. But on that, if he if he were to allow, oh come on, God, just one little thing. That's just a you know, one little thing, one little defilement. And he's not God, because then that's it would be tainted, and his holiness would be marred, and then you can't recover that again. Like you know, if you do a Picasso, if you scratch it, it's you can't recover it again. It's not going to be the same as it was. So, according to his holiness, then he must punish sin. His nature, his essence, demand that the guilty be punished. Now check this out. He won't set aside his holiness if, as if that's a loving thing to do. He's not going to say, you know, you're naughty, you defiled, you're, you know, you're sinful and wrong and encroached on my holiness, but that's okay because I love you. See, that he can't do that because that's inconsistent with his nature. That's a big deal for us. And that's what you want to tell people too. Like it's, it's not like we don't pit his attributes against each other. He won't set aside his holiness as if that's a loving thing to do. His holiness and his love are in perfect harmony with one another. That's something really important to remember. Um, they're not against each other. Tony, you were alluding to that. So that's the holiness of God. And that's why a loving God, how can a loving God send anybody? He's a holy God. And that holiness needs to be preserved and maintained. It cannot be defiled because that's who God is. And as, as this unfolds, as the class unfolds, you'll see that more and more. Again, I would commend R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God series to go on that um, The second idea, the characteristic we're going to look at is love, because there it is. God is love. So I'm going to ask, what's that mean, God is love? You can ask 20 different people to give you 20 different answers. So if I ask you, what is love? I mean, God is love. What does that mean? What do you think that means? That's kind of rhetorical, but if you feel like throwing out an answer, you may do that. Acceptance. Blanket acceptance. And that's how it's perceived by so many today. If God is love, again, especially in the progressive church, if God is love, 
He's equally, equally benevolent to all people at all times. And that sounds so fair, doesn't it? It sounds so nice. And God's a loving, and he loves everybody, all the same, everywhere, all the time, in the same way. He could see that, <laughs> you know. Um, but that's not what Scripture teaches. If he loves everything equally, then he doesn't love anything truly. Mark that down. I don't know if that's in your things. If he, does, if he loves everything equally, then he doesn't love anything truly. Because if he loves everything and everyone equally, that means that um, the same love he has for those who believe in him is the same love he has to have towards those who don't believe in him. So we'd have to love Hitler or Stalin or that unrepentant, unremorseful sinner who shakes his fist as God just as much as he loves you who trust in him and love him. Um, there's nothing special about that love, that kind of love. His love's or unique about that love, or his concern. So, now listen, on the one hand, I want you to don't misunderstand, God is so loving. And so the people get confused. Well, God is a God of love, and he loves everybody. We're all brothers in Christ. Uh, no, we're, we're all created, in that sense, we're all image bearers. But what makes us brothers and sisters is our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what brings us to God. That's how we become his children. We're adopted into his family. But on the other hand, there is a there is a, a universal equal benevolence of God that's a demonstration of his grace and mercy. But it's not love in the sense of God how God loves. So if you think about uh, just think about in scripture, how does God demonstrate care, love for all people in, in a certain way? And think about Matthew. What does he what does he cause to happen to the good and the evil? Yeah, that's called common grace. He's a benevolent God, and that's what we always have to remember. You think, oh, he's God up there, he's always no. Apart from him, we don't even have air to breathe. That's that's very true. So people that don't love him, don't believe in him, hate him, still breathe his air, still benefit from his rain that he sends and the sunshine that he gives. Um in Acts chapter 14, we'll look at just a couple passages in Acts, if you want to turn with me here. This is this is kind of a benevolence of God towards all people that none of us are really owed, especially as enemies of God, but he shows this act of kindness. But don't mistake this for God's love for his people and the, and the thing that God just loves everybody equally. So no matter what you do, we were talking to, um, on that Pride Day, Mount Lebanon Pride Day, talking to a priestess from a universalist church or whatever it was, and she was just saying, God loves everybody. So I said, so there's no, nobody, there's no punishment for anybody? No, no, no. You know, everybody's loved, you know. So we asked her a question about how do you reconcile sin in the Bible and why Jesus came and died. She said, that's what, I have to wrap my, it's hard to wrap my head around that question. That's what she said, something to the effect of that line. And so that's, it's just this universal idea. It's no matter what you do, how you live, what you believe. God is so loving. He's just going to give us a clean slate in the end. But that's not, what the Bible teaches. However, he is still good to his creation. So in Acts chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, we read this. And um, Paul says, um, so just a little bit of context. There at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas, and they're preaching, and then people want to make them gods. They're coming to say, oh, you're the gods, you're gods. And they say, no, 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 we're men just like you. Don't bow to us. There's only one true living God. But then he goes on in verse uh, uh, 16 
and says, um, well, go to verse 50. He says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. In past generation, he allowed nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And so he's trying to say, look, right, don't, we're not God, we're pointing you to God. The God who gives you rain, who sustains you, who, even though you hate him and don't care for him, he's still showing this aspect of grace and mercy and benevolence towards you. Um, then Acts chapter 17, just turn the page, um, 24 through 31. Um, Acts 17, Paul's in Athens and he's preaching. I'm not going to read all those passages, but the entire section. Okay. He says, uh, Paul's preaching to to the men there, and says this talking about the unknown altar of the God. And he says, uh, verse 26, And he made from one man every living nation, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps fear the way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. And then he says, um, For we are his offspring. And... It's not the passage I really wanted. I don't think it is. But he talks about God's goodness, his graciousness. We're still made in his image of God. As image bearers, he gives us these good things. So when we think about, like we say, God is love, um, you could think of a faithful marriage. A husband and wife share a love for one another that we don't share with others, right? So, so there is that distinction how we love like our, we love our wives in a very special way. We don't we don't love our neighbors the same way we love. We don't love Sam down the street the same way we love our wives. We love them in a different way. So there's a different ex- expression of that kind of love. Even with siblings and friends, it's a different kind of relationship. And also, there's you can love things. There's a wrong kind of love, which is actually evil, right? Um, what are some examples maybe of that? You can think of scripture, people are lovers of pleasure or whatever, but like you could really love something, but it's a disordered and it's a wrong kind of love, even though it may be very sincere. Any examples of that? Romans 133 is giving you something to say. Any Yeah, and so that's a big deal today. Love is love, and so you hear that today, and that's a big, big, big kind of um, argument term is put in our put in our put before us all the time. You know, hey, love is love. Who are you to say this person can't love that person? You know? Well, if that's true, and that's kind of the idea here. God is love. 
And so if he's loving, then that means there's going to be forgiveness and so on and so forth. There's nothing disordered about that. There's nothing like, you know, where you, two men can love each other, two women can love each other. As long as they love each other. As long as they're exclusive, not hurting anybody. Right? But that is that really love? Who defines love? What love is? It's a big deal. It's a big deal. So that, these are the kinds of things that they're going to say to us. So we say God is love. First John 4, 8. I think that's on your outline. And when, when in First John, in the construction, the way that it's written in the Greek, it means that God is not only loving or just demonstrates love, but that he is love. It means he is the definition of love. Right? So, and he defines what love is. <laughs> Since he's the definition of love, he sets the idea, this is what love is. Here's what it means to love your neighbor. And this is what it looks like. And that could be distorted by us. Now we could think, well, loving our neighbor means that we must follow all the protocols, right? Remember that during the COVID time. That was, that was a big thing from everybody. If you love your neighbor, then you're going to do this. But but we we don't have the prerogative of defining what love is. We are to understand what God teaches love is and then obey that. And see, that's where we that's where we go wrong. And so we come up with our kind of own definitions of what love is, and we think love should be what seems fair to us. So if you are talking to a very committed homosexual, they're really going to be honest, say, "This is what love is. This is I love this other person, love me." God can't be mad at that because it's love. Well, if God doesn't define love, of course, but if God's the one who defines love and says that's disordered, that's not true love. That's not what love looks like as I order it. Then there's going to be that's where the tension comes in. So. Because he is love. Everything he does is also character, characterized by love in certain ways. So even people going to hell, you're going to hopefully see this, honors God and glorifies him even in his love. Okay? Try to, try to make that come through tonight. It's going to be hard to do. But even John 6, 3, John 3.16 is a perfect passage to try to describe this. What's John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have, have everlasting life. So that's a really good passage to think about this idea. God has a commitment to people that he's created. God so loved the world. Okay? His people that he has for the foundation chosen. But he, he's, he's, he has a commitment to people that he's created. For God so loved the world. And what he did about it is he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish. So the, the clause there, will not perish. God so loved the world, will not perish. Those are two things coming to, should come into view for us right now. God is commitment to the people he created. He's love in that sense. But his love will never violate his holiness. Right? He's still going to perish. Because God is love doesn't mean that people aren't going to perish, in other words. That they're not going to go to hell. You need to believe in Christ. That's the key to everything. Um, listen, his love and holiness manifest themselves in ways that are consistent with each other. They're never in conflict with each other at all. So, the God who is love will punish sin and he'll do so in a way that doesn't compromise his holiness. His judgments against sin and sinners are not only holy, but it's also loving. Here it is. This is the trick right now if you want to get this. His judgments against sin and sinners is not only holy, because you can't defile them in any way, but it's also loving according to God's definition of love. 
because he loves holiness so much that he's such a holy God that he must deal with sin. Do you understand? So they're not, does that make sense at all? That he loves holiness so much that he cannot violate that holiness without the requirements being met by Jesus. I'm always going back to that because praise God for that. That's what he did. He made provision for us. But strictly speaking, that love can't say, oh, I'm just going to let go because he loves his holiness so much. He must carry it out of my life. That's a big, big deal. And that's a little bit of a hard teaching in some in some ways, but it's very, that's what scripture is. That's, that's the attributes. So, would a loving God punish sin? Yeah, because he's holy. Um, will a loving God send a guilty sinner to hell? And it's per- perfectly consistent with his character and nature. You know, and, he's, and he's not like, oh, shucks, I sent them to hell. I feel so bad that you're now. But I had to do it because you know, there's that standard of God and his righteousness. This is, this is the just desserts for your rebellion and your enmity with me and shaking your fist at me. See, this is tough stuff, but this is what we have to come to grips with as, as Christians. He will because his love is consistent with his other attributes. It's consistent with his holiness, his justice, his truth, all of that. Um, he cannot or he will not allow any injustice to go unpunished. And that's going to be our next thing we talk about. So uh, it's not set in... Listen, try to give some examples of this. He cannot and will not allow injustice to go unpunished. I'm going to be reiterating this, but it's it's like not sentencing. Not sentencing a rapist is not love. You know what I mean? There can always be some measure of compassion, care, but if you're speaking of the law, strictly speaking, it's not the loving thing to do to not punish someone who's transgressed. Somebody came and murdered your son or stole something from you, whatever. You know, that, that has to be answered. If not, you get into chaos, like kind of what's happening today in our world. <laughs> you throw out the holiness and the law of God, this is what happens. And you're just like, whoa, what's going on? These people are breaking into stores and they're just taking things out. If I... You know, walk, jaywalk, I'm going to get a ticket because, you know, that's that's unequal justice. It's not fair. It's not right. And we know this, and yet, you know, that's that's a whole other story. I'm going to digress quite a bit on that path. I don't want to do that. But see, there's, that should make you kind of like, get you a little upset. And like, wait a minute, that dude just stole my car and nothing happened to him. And, you know, if I don't, if I'm late on my bill, I'm going to get, like lights turned off, you know, just something's wrong here. So that's not love. May, not making um, a thief pay restitution. That's not the loving thing to do. I love you so much. Don't worry about it. No, you need to learn. If somebody steals something, but you cannot steal. It's not right. It doesn't properly belong to you. Not say you have to go to jail necessarily, but you have to make restitution. You have to say I'm sorry. Remember, um, when we were kids, man. We stole all the time. We had we had we had it down to a science, bro. We had the parkas back in the day. We'd cut little holes in the bat and the in the thing. Just go into the Woolworths, the South Hills Village, tape stuff, put it in there, put that candy back there. So even they checked our pockets. We, my one friend, uh, Ricky, he stole a little push-up from a, a store, a little family deli in Bethel Park, 
And he's, I said, where'd you get that? And he's like licking it, licking it, like, we're sitting there, like, like, he's like, I, you know, I just took it. I was like, wow, can you, you stole it. And the clerk came out. And he busted. He's like, "Where'd you?" He said, "Where'd you get that?" And Ricky right away confessed, "I stole it. <laughs> I stole it." And so the guy made him. He brought him back into the store. He had to apologize, and he didn't have any money to pay. But he made him wrap it up and like put it back in the freezer just to teach. Him. But that's what you did. I mean, I don't think anybody bought it after that. But see, but there's justice there, and and this is just like little tiny things. Now we're talking on a cosmic scale with God here, and and next week you're going to see just how sinful. Uh, we are, but um, th- this is the idea. So that leads us to the third and final uh, attribute we'll, we'll touch on tonight, and that is the righteousness or the justice of God. So all these things, because he's holy, because he's loving, and because he's righteous, is why people are rightly sent to hell that are repentant. Um, so God is righteous. When we ask, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? Or is God unfair or unjust in sending him anybody to hell? Is there a chance that he acts in an unrighteous manner? Should he allow injustice to go unpunished? Will he reward evil in any way? You know, all these questions. No. Um, an unrighteous, listen, an unrighteous, unjust judge who doesn't act or abide by the law um, is a judge that you can't stand. If you've had any dealings with the legal system, you know this. Watch law and order sometimes. Usually justice prevails, but sometimes it doesn't. And on those shows when it doesn't, when, you know, when they lose that case that they should have won, you're just like, ah, you know, or, um, it, there's nothing worse, or not too many things worse, although it's all too common these days, is, is a judge who doesn't abide by the law, who doesn't carry out justice. And again, it could be little reasons or big reasons, but it, they might be personal reasons. Um, it might be, you know, person might be convicted, but the judge overturns a conviction because he doesn't feel that a just sentence was given or something like that. Some judges are bought off, you know, that, that kind of thing. We, we, we don't like that. Um, but yet, because that's not just, and there's something inside of us that says, when that happens, especially when there's one in authority that represents the law itself, who's supposed to uphold justice and just clearly, clearly, serves in an unjust way and there's no justice isn't served and the guilty aren't punished or the righteous aren't punished or the guilty um, you know, get away get away with it that's hard stuff that's hard stuff but that's there's nothing worse oh, there's always something worse but like an unjust judge or in the legal system like a you know, dirty lawyers but that's um, it doesn't um, but, but when you have that that person who's supposed to represent true justice Fairness, equality under the law, impartiality. That's what, that's, you respect that. But otherwise you don't, like, and it could be little things too. How many of you ever got a ticket fixed? None of you? I did. Many a time. Well, my dad had connections, you know. He was a tailor. He would uh, put all those patches on the, the police officer's jackets and stuff so whenever you got a ticket just go to my dad Vito and say dad you know I got, got this ticket you know and you'll go to you stand to say you tell him you're my son and so that's what I would do and you know my dad's Vito and the judge okay I'm gonna let you off this time the magistrate with it. so it's like three times that happened with me and it's kind of cute and funny but that was not just I broke that law 
and I knew I was breaking that law. I did 52 miles an hour in a 25 zone, and I knew I was breaking that on Clifton Road. And I got busted, and I was wrong. And I should have paid, but I didn't. And, you know, it's kind of cute when you talk about tickets. But then it, it, gets, it goes further, you know. It, same kind of scenario within my family. There were several DUIs of a member of our family. That's not funny. But that person got off. Off, off, off because of the influence that was towards the judge. And so much of the time, one time the police officers who were there just could not take it anymore. And they just shouted out in the middle of that in the magistrate because it wasn't right. How many DUIs is this guy going to get get off? How dare. Even the judge said, well, this is the last time I'm going to do this. Um, because it's not just. The Bible declares that God is just and he's righteous. Psalm 32, 4, Psalm 97, 2. Many, many passages. We're not going to look at those just for sake of time, but you have them on your outline. God is righteous. God's righteousness is God's, listen, God's righteousness is God's holiness applied to his relationship with other beings. See, that holiness that God has, that nothing's about, that justice and righteousness is how his holiness is applied to other beings. Righteousness means that the law of God, being a true expression of his nature, is as perfect as he is. Righteousness means that his actions are in accordance with the law he himself established. He doesn't merely do things that are right, although he always does everything that's right, the right thing. Rather, again, God is a definition of justice and righteousness. He just doesn't uphold justice. See, we can uphold justice and righteousness. God is righteous and just. And he defines what is righteous and just. That is why, and that's where our laws derive from. And even if you have bad laws, they're going to be bad until they're in accord with Scripture. And it doesn't matter where you go in the universe. So somebody's murder is never right in any land you go to. You know, nobody's going to congratulate you if you murder somebody. That's not going to be. They're not going to be cheering when you murder murder somebody in the first week. Nowhere, anywhere on this earth, you can go to. You know, people. Bad people might. Oh yeah, you killed that guy. But you know, society's not going to. It's not going to be like this. Congratulations, you murdered somebody. You get the prize. That's a wonderful thing. No, we know that. But when that's not upheld, that's when you feel that that injustice. See, that because. That justice and righteousness depends on God's law, which is eternal and universal. We can't escape it, no matter how hard we try. That's what, that's what people keep trying to do. So it's not, he's, it's, it's not merely that he does the right thing. He's a definition of righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice find their context and definition in God. He's the one who, who determines what is right and what isn't. By definition, God is all his actions, all his actions are righteous and just in all situations at all times. Because he's holy, he'll never act in a manner that's unholy, unfair, unrighteous, or unjust. See that? This is our God. That's, we're just laying this foundation. How can a good God send anyone to hell? This is how. This is the foundation for that. Um, as God defines what's right and just, and what justice is, is because it flows from his nature. His standards are the absolute standards for the entire world. As we just kind of mentioned with the murder idea. Everywhere you go, for the most part, unless you're in cahoots with somebody, people would say stealing is wrong. You can't take something that doesn't belong to you. Intuitively, we know that. Every culture, everywhere, it's inside. You know, if you take something that doesn't belong to you, those kinds of things, we, we know that law is written on our hearts. 
And that comes from him. His righteousness will never change because he's immutable. His standards will never change in the slightest. We live in a system, in a, in a world where everything changes. What, what was illegal 10 years ago is now legal and accepted today. We live in this, and that's very frustrating for us on so many levels. We could sit here all night and talk about the different laws, even morality laws, dealing with morality, but the other, other areas as well. Um, everything goes back to morality in a sense, but in different categories, we can see how the law changes. And usually becomes more liberal. Like, you know, we were a little more strict back then, but now we're going to be a little, a little less strict in this way. But with God, that never changes. The standard is the standard, as Coach likes to say, Coach Tomlin. But that's really, God's standard doesn't change in any way. Uh, because his justice and righteousness will always be the same, he cannot be charged with being unjust. Like this, he lays out what justice is, and this is what it is, and it's always going to be this. So you can't say, well, that's unjust. Now, if he was changing, when we see laws change, we can say, well, that's not just. With God, he's immutable, he doesn't change, and so he's, he will always, he can never be charged with being unjust. His standard and punishment against sin will never change. Um, he won't grow accustomed to sin or excuse sin. Again, like we do, more and more, you see, in the, in the law courts, in the system, you know, we're just not going to deal with sin, or deal with the crime. We'll just let that go. We'll you know, we have more important things to worry about. You know, we're going to deal with that. Um, we get accustomed to sin. Go to night court. You know, they bring in the, the person. You know, you pay the fine and you're gone, right? The prostitutes are out back on the street. You know, it's kind of how the system is. And once you get into the law system, from people that I know, it's just like that. You know, it's just very much routine and so many things that you get accustomed, and then you start excusing sin in that way. But because he's righteous and just, he will punish sin. And will always provide justice in a righteous manner as he punishes sin. He'll never be more or less severe than the situation demands because he's perfectly just and righteous. Perfect justice will be carried out at all times. He determines who has violated his laws and he gets to determine what the right and just punishment is for those crimes. That's his righteous and justice. I know it's kind of machine gun effect right now. Um, as, we're, as we're coming to the end of this, but that's those are the the, the biggies. I got five minutes. Um, Will said I just got the fight. ETA is nine fifteen. Just gonna have to wait. <laughs> uh, one more <laughs> nine fifteen. That's nine thirty. We could we could zoom out there, but nine fifteen. We might as well just stay as long as we want to now. No. Um, one more thing. Just as we close, just so you get, and this is just this is real important. And I know this is, there's a lot here. And, um, you know, obviously you could ask questions or we could talk about more of this at, at different times. But I wanted to lay this out to put flesh on the bones. Uh, this is how God determines. This is why God can send, uh, a loving God can send uh, a sinner to help. And the last idea, and I think it's on your outline, is God is unity. Again, Tony, you alluded to this earlier. God cannot turn off some of his attributes. He is all of his attributes at all times to the perfection of those attributes. He cannot violate his nature. Everything he does, he does um, from and through. And all, all his attributes are in sync with one another. In other words, he's 100% of all his attributes. He's 100% love. He's not more love than he is just. He's not more, you know, gracious than he is holy. And he, he's, he's 100% of all of his attributes simultaneously in every single action and thought. He will never act in love outside of his holiness. In other words, he'll never act in love outside of his righteousness. 
Nor will he act in holiness outside of his love. Just all together, all the time. You know, so, you know, um, and perfectly. He'll always act in a manner consistent with all of his attributes at the same time. Since this is all true, and in the light of the truth, let's consider the question again, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? He's holy. He's unchanging, as are his standards. He's love. His love's consistent with his holiness. And he will never violate his holiness or his justice. He can't be coerced. He can't be manipulated. You can't make a deal with God. People try to do that all the time. God, if you let me off on this one, I'll never drink a beer again. You know, God, you know, that kind of thing. You make those bargains with God. He's not in the business of bargaining in that way. He's made a way of salvation. That's it. So he's not going to be coerced. He's not going to be manipulated into contrary, into anything contrary to his own nature or his own character. That way, so I don't know when people try to do that. God, if you just do this for me, then I'll never do that again. That's dangerous because now you're messing with the holiness, the righteousness of God in that way. He executes judgment against sin, um, and and he does that. He does that perfectly. So, how could a loving and just God declare a guilty sinner to be righteous in His sight? That's that's the big thing that we want to close with tonight. Um, and that's only through Jesus Christ. That's why he made a way. That's why we love Jesus. That's why we want to tell everybody about Jesus, because it is through Jesus Christ that he makes unjust, unrighteous, unholy sinners acceptable in his sight. Everything that Christ did, he lived a perfect life that we can never live. He never sinned one time. He's perfectly holy. He's never defiled in any way. Right? He voluntarily substituted himself in our place, on the cross, to take the punishment that our sin deserves, that justice of God, that righteousness of God is satisfied by Jesus Christ alone. We can't do that, right? We, we can't pay for our sins because we're sinful. We bear the punishment that Christ took the punishment of our sin, was raised on the third day. So when we believe in him, all his righteousness is given to us, all our sin is given to him, imputed to him, God looks at us, declares us not guilty. We're accepted in his sight. Our sins are pardoned because he is holy. So I have to leave with that, obviously, because that's that's everything. Otherwise, and this is where you know the unbelievers are going to face that holiness, the wrath, the justice of God, and that love of God for his holiness, righteousness, and wrath. Do you understand? What kind of God would do this? I leave you with the question. What kind of God would be, what kind of God would he be if he allowed sin to go unpunished? Or he was not just? Or he let his holiness be defiled? He would be no God at all. Okay. That was pretty quick. I know there's a lot there. Comments? Questions? Was this helpful? Okay. Helpful. Good. Anything? Good stuff? And if you have any questions along the way or any comments, just let me know. And I do apologize. I know tonight I was just kind of going through this quickly. But what we're going to do next week is we're going to start off with um, finishing up what we didn't get to tonight. So now we see that God is holy, righteous, and just and loving. Okay, this is this is how he can send a person to hell. But... What makes us hell worthy, <laughs> in other words? What about the human condition? 
Are we pretty good people? Are we, you know, just people that make mistakes and kind of not totally worthy of going to hell? In light of who God is, well, next week we're going to start off by looking at the human condition and the case that Scripture makes that, yes, we absolutely deserve the wrath of God to be punished in that way. So that's, that'll be next week. And following that, we'll have a break. But then we're going to talk about what did Jesus teach on hell, and that's where we're going to get actually into the teachings. You know, this is what hell is like. This is the description of hell. And that, that'll lead into a couple more objections. So we'll try to answer those. So we have about four more weeks left in our class. So six, six seven weeks. So that's our second week. All right? Let me pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you and praise you so much. And this is a daunting subject, Lord, and it is difficult, and yet it's biblical. And we are, we are called to try to be faithful to you and, and just with great humility and in awe because of your majesty and seek not to be, be handle these in a light fashion because these are very difficult and heavy teachings, Lord God, from your precious word. But they speak to your grandeur, to your majesty, to your holiness and your righteousness and to your love and how that's juxtaposed against our rebellion, our uncleanliness, our unholiness, Lord God, our unrighteousness, Lord, and defying you and shaking our fists at you and being an enemy and taking for granted, even more than that, not even acknowledging you in any single way, even for your common grace that you spread on all people, Lord God, and, and, and how we live in our hearts toward you, and yet in your love and your mercy you sent your Son to die for sins, to be buried and raised on the third day, and to give life to all those who believe. So we are thankful for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and I pray, Lord God, that we would take that word into a dying world that right now is truly unashamedly, flippantly with great bravado shaking its fist in your face, Lord God, and simply denying you. Right for judgment, Lord God. But we pray that you would bring the gospel and a revival to the hearts of so many. We pray this in Jesus' name.